Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aiden Fall. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hello, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts. Yeah, this week, we actually have uh, the trio all back together. For uh, the last two weeks, it's uh, been alternating where it's just been me and uh, one of the other two, because uh, McConnell and then Paul both had things that came up, so... It's good for the whole trio to be back together. So, Amen. <laughs> uh, just before we start, I think we're all really excited also about uh, the new Top Gun movie. Just came out this Friday. Um, I have to wait, unfortunately, a few days before I can go see it. Um, however, I am really looking forward to this. I've waited pretty much ever since I saw the first Top Gun movie for the second one to come out. And it should be really awesome. Uh, yeah, I heard, heard it was pretty good, so hopefully. Yeah, I've heard they're projecting uh, $150 million just on the opening, so clearly I'm not the only one who is uh, pretty hyped to see this. So, with all that out of the way, let's get on to our topic for tonight, which will be Soviet ground effect vehicles. So, um, Soviet ground effect vehicles are a very interesting and a very rare type of technology that existed back in the 60s. Uh, up until the 90s. So just to give us a little bit of a background and a bit of a history on them is Sergeant Paul. So Sergeant Paul, take it away. Thank you, Anderson. So to understand the chronoplanes, first we're going to have to understand a little bit about hydrofoils. So back in the early 1960s, the fastest way to propel a boat was with devices called hydrofoils that would essentially put wings in the water underneath the boat and allow for stupid high speeds. So... One worker at the Soviet Central Hydrofoil Design Bureau named Rotislav Alexiev had an idea. He would use hydrofoil technology to get his ships going real fast. And from there, they would have, their wings would let them to lift out of the water like a seaplane. So it's effectively just an improved seaplane. However, his, his seaplane would have one main advantage or rather distinction from traditional aircraft. That being that he would rely on a phenomenon known as the ground effect. So the ground effect is a phenomenon that's been known to pilots since around the 1920s, where in fixed wing aircraft, once the aircraft reaches half of its wingspan's length above the ground, a cushion of air will kill a large amount of drag, making landings more difficult. So Alexiev had the idea to use the idea of the ground effect and use it to create extremely fuel-efficient aircraft by having them fly just a few meters off the ground, riding a cushion of air. And so, to do this, Alexiev needed funding. And so he presented the idea to the Soviet government, and thankfully, Premier Nikita Khrushchev was rather open to innovative ideas back in the 1960s. After all, they needed every advantage they could get over the United States. And so, after a bit of convincing, Alexiev had begun work on the Karabo Maquette, this aircraft, better known as the KM for short, or by its English nickname, the Caspian Sea Monster, was truly ingenious because, that because of the ground effect, it needed very few engines to fly despite the fact of carrying massive payloads. For example, for example it had 10 VD-7 turbojets attached, but only needed two to support up to a million pounds of weight after taking off, making it seem perfect as a troop carrier. So a few specifications real quick. It, was, had, it, was, it had five five crew and a capacity of 50 troops, 
Now, the main thing about ground effect vehicles is they were big to take as much advantage of the ground effect as possible. This was seen because the KM had a length of 92 meters or 301 feet with a wingspan of 37.6 meters or 123 feet, as well as being 21 meters tall. They were huge or 71 feet. Now it had an empty weight of 529,000 pounds or 240,000 kilograms and a gross weight of 1.2 million pounds, 544,000 kilos, a bit more than a Boeing 747. This meant that it would, this meant that because this only, after all, I only needed two of its engines to support that weight would be effectively like a Boeing 747 only needing one of its four engines to, to take off at full weight. Now, on top of this, it also has a maximum speed of 500 kilometers per hour or 310 miles per hour, a cruise speed of 430 kilometers per hour or 270 miles, a range of 1,500 kilometers, which is certainly impressive, and a service ceiling of, get this, 14 meters or 45 feet. <laughs> oh, that's always hilarious whenever I read that. So the KM's construction was finished in 1966 and received its maiden flight in the Caspian Sea, hence nicknamed Caspian Sea Monster, on October 16, 1966, piloted by Vladimir Logzhinov and Alexiev himself. Ekranoplans had promise. The fact that they could fly so fast with such fuel efficiency meant they were extremely useful for traveling long distances, distances such as the Atlantic Ocean, maybe in case war with the United States broke out. And on top of this, they were virtually invisible to radar due to their low altitude and completely invisible to sonar due to being out of the water. So they were fairly stealthy aircraft. And on top of this, as I said before, it was so efficient that only two of its 10 engines or about 56,000 pounds of thrust were needed to keep its million pounds of cargo in the air flying, which is which I must say is extremely impressive, especially for the 1960s. So overall, Chronoplans had massive potential, but they still had three main flaws. Because of their odd design, they needed quite a long time and distance to properly turn, meaning they had to spot any kind of obstacle from islands to boats from at least a dozen miles away to avoid a crash. And secondly, since they couldn't achieve a high altitude by any means, they weren't fit for the high waves and unsavory weather of the ocean, and so would only be useful in relatively calm waters, restricting it to operate in the various seas near Russia or, if need be, the English Channel. Now, a, actually, a decent comparison to this flaw would be how nigh undetectable the B-2 bomber is, but it also can't operate in the rain. You have all of your... All the pros of the aircraft get knocked out because of because of a few glaring weaknesses. And yeah, that was sorry, oh, sorry. to jump ahead, in. Yeah. That was just that was just like one thing I was thinking of when we were doing research for this episode. I was thinking, I mean, you really couldn't fly it that far from home, or I don't even know if we should be saying you could fly because you could only go, as you said, fourteen meters uh, above the ocean. That doesn't really seem like it's really going to be that practical in like military use. Right, exactly. And uh, finally, they were inherently unstable and couldn't operate without massive stabilizers. Like, remember how the KM has a height of 20 meters? That's all in the tail. 
and bigger bodies to take full advantage of the ground effect, which also meant that they were expensive, which is another factor in actually creating useful ones. If you're finally got the design down and you create a good and ground effect vehicle, there's a problem that it'll most likely never make its worth from all of the R&D that you've done. Um, one, one more. Because yeah, sorry, these just yeah, they sound like incredibly expensive aircraft, and I honestly can't think of like any use you'd have for them in battle. Like they sound like they'd be incredibly efficient, incredibly fast at transporting stuff over like calm bodies of water. But in an actual wartime scenario where you might be getting shot at, or you might need to uh, stay away from the enemies, it, it really doesn't seem like it's that practical. Right. Another, another factor here for how massive their bodies needed to be. The KM was the largest aircraft in the world up until the AN-225 was introduced back in the mid-1980s. And the AN-225 was designed to transport satellites on its back. So, you know, these things were massive machines. Like, if you look up fo photos of them, which I certainly recommend you do, they are huge. Now... Despite all of these previously mentioned flaws, there was certainly potential. And so two large ground effect vehicle projects after the KM were made to at least try and make the design work, those being the VVA-14 and the Lund class Chronoplan. So with that, Anderson, you're off with the VVA-14. All right. Thank you, Sergeant Paul. So the VVA, sorry, VVA-114. I want to first try and pronounce that aircraft's full name because in last week's episode, I tried to pronounce a German word and I'm really embarrassed about how that went because I butchered that word very bad after I'd spent an entire day consulting with my German speaking friends on how to say it. Uh, I finally figured it out, by the way. It's Deutsche Luftschiffs als Aktiengesellschaft, which like I learned how to say that perfectly after we recorded the episode. So I'm going to try and redeem myself here with this Russian. So uh, let's see if I can do it. So the Verticalno Vezletsyshoye Amphibia. There we go. That's what VVA stands for. Verticalno Vezletsyshoye Amphibia. I think I got it on the first one. I butchered it slightly on the second one. Like it's the first and the third word of that name are okay. The V and the A, but the second V, the, that second word, that's what really throws you for a loop. That's the hard one. All right, so starting off with the uh, Bartini Beriev, I'm just going to call it the VVA one for, or uh, sorry, VVA 14, because I do not want to try and butcher that name every time. So um, the VVA 14 was designed by Italian Russian aircraft designer Bartini Beriev sometime in the early 1970s. He worked on Ekranoplane projects before for the Soviet government and decided to make his own design. The result was an aircraft that would rival the F-117 Nighthawk in terms of complexity and over-engineering. So the VVA-14 was designed as an amphibious submarine hunter, specifically to destroy the, at the time, new American Polaris missile subs. The main thing to think about the uh, VVA-14 is that it was somehow even wider, sorry, even weirder than the KM. That it was designed to be able to fly at high altitudes like a regular aircraft, operate within ground effect, have inflatable pontoons who could act as a float plane, and even have VTOL capabilities. Paul, 
you wrote the script for this week, so I just want to clarify, is all the stuff I just said correct? Yes. This definitely is a lot weirder. This is a lot more bizarre than the KM. And I'm very interested to hear how they work. Like, uh, you wrote everything out for us here. I'm very interested to read about uh, this aircraft. Like, I've done a little bit of research on Ekranoplanes before, but I've never heard of specifically this one. So I am very interested to um, discover how this works. And I think a lot of our listeners are going to be excited too, considering that uh, this isn't an aircraft that I've even heard of. So uh, I'm willing to bet not a lot of people have heard of this, but I am very interested to hear how it accomplished all of these things. So um, all of these things don't even take into account the VVA-14's main role of being a submarine hunter and all the equipment that came along with being um, able to fire depth charges, sonar, and torpedoes and a whole bunch of other stuff. So quickly, let's talk about uh, what some of the specifications of the VVA-14 were. So I had a uh, crew of three. Um, for that, I'm assuming, would it have two pilots or would it have three pilots, Sergeant Paul? Uh, Sergeant Paul, are you there? Yeah, we do these over Zoom, so uh, sometimes the connection is a little spotty. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I would assume those three crew were probably like uh, two pilots and a flight engineer or something like that. Um, yes, it appears we might have lost Sergeant Paul there. I don't know what's going on with his audio. He's saying he's having some problem, but uh, we'll just have to keep on going. So anyway, um, the uh, VVA-14 had a length of 26 meters or 85 feet, a wingspan of 30 meters, 98 feet, a height of 6.8 meters, 22 feet, uh, had an empty weight of 51,000 pounds or 23,000 kilograms, a gross weight of 114,000 pounds or 52,000 kilograms. Uh, for engines, it had two D30M turbofan engines giving 30,000 pounds of total thrust. Uh, it also had 12 RD3635PR turbofan lift engines giving a total of 116,000 pounds of VTOL thrust. It had a maximum speed of 760 kilometers per hour, which is 470 miles per hour or 410 knots. It had a cruise speed of 350 knots, which is 400 miles per hour or 640 kilometers per hour. It had a range of 2,450 kilometers, which is 1,520 miles. Weirdly, this is actually the only uh, thing, the range this is one of the only ones that we don't have in nautical miles because you have pretty much everything else in nautical miles on here except for the range. Um, so for the service ceiling, it could fly between 8,000 and 10,000 meters, which is between 26,000 and 33,000 feet. So the VVA-14's first prototype was introduced in 1972 and had its first flight on September 4th of that year on a conventional runway. In 1974, the inflatable pontoons were installed. However, they were unreliable at best and barely ever worked. Being replaced with rigid pontoons and the first amphibious test happened in June of 1975. Also, the Bureau of Supply and the batteries for the 12 lift jets were never delivered, making VTOL tests impossible. After Bartini's death in 1974, however, Tests slowly began happening less and less until the VVA-14 was officially retired in 1987 and transported to the Central Air Force Museum in Moscow, where it resides to this day. 
And I have to be honest, I think uh, this thing suffers the same fate as the KM where it's, um, where it's really unreliable, it's really expensive. And at that point, there's many other things that would do the job. So this was designed uh, to fight against American submarines. However, there were many other uh, capable Russian aircraft that could do that. Uh, for example, the Tu-95. I know that was more of a strategic bomber. However, in a lot of cases, they would use that in their uh, anti-submarine warfare. So I think the Russians could have just stuck with that instead of wasting millions upon millions of dollars upon something like this that never really worked. So that is it for the uh, VPA-14. Now let's move on to the uh, Loon class Ekrano plan, which is uh, going to be talked about by Sergeant McConnell. So Sergeant McConnell, why don't you tell us all about this aircraft? Okay, so I might cut out a little bit. Um, Wi-Fi is being a little bit buggy, so um, sorry about that. But um, finally, we are going to end off this episode with the Loon class Ekrano plan. Um, so Alexiev, I think I'm saying that right. Hopefully I am. Um, he designed it in 1975 as a successor um, to the KM, and it had its first maiden flight in 1983. However, since Alexiev had died in um, 1980 during the KM crash, it only ever got general improvements over the KM, but uh, with one real difference. The KM was uh, designed for transport. However, the Loon class Xrono plan was designed for anti-surface warfare, a naval term for shooting stuff above the water. So it carried 15 crew. It was 74 meters long and it had a wingspan, a wingspan of 44 meters and it had a height of 19 meters. It had an empty weight of 630,000 pounds, a gross weight of um, 837,000 pounds. And for the engines, it had eight NK87 turbofans giving approximately 228,000 pounds of thrust in total. It had a maximum speed of 550 kilometers an hour, which is 300 knots. Um, it had a cruise speed of 450 kilometers an hour, which is 240 knots. It had a range of 2,000 kilometers, and it had a service ceiling of five meters. For the armament, it had four PI-23AA guns located um, on the tail and under missile tubes. It had six P-270 Mosca anti-ship cruise missiles. And then only a single Loon class um, Xrono plan was built, being designated um, the MD-160. It would serve from 1987 to sometime in the late 90s, and then it was put in storage until 2020. And the Russian government decided to tow it to Gerbrandt, Russia, hopefully I said that right as well, uh, to be displayed at the Patriot Park, which is um, a combination of a museum and a theme park. After getting stuck for a while, it was um, then towed to shore in December of 2021. Um, the park sadly doesn't have a website um, and we couldn't really find it. So therefore we can't verify if it's currently on display. However, Radio Free Europe um, took some close-up photos of the MD-160 and its interiors um, when it was first beginning to be moved in 2020. And we recommend that we check those out. All right, thank you, Sergeant McConnell. So yeah, those are the uh, three Ekrano planes that were uh, designed by the Soviet Union. So um, with Alexeyev's death in 1980 following a KM crash, production of Ekrano planes virtually halted, with the MD-160 being the only one to come out since. 
Combine that with the fact that uh, Soviet ground effect vehicles were highly secretive uh, until long after the fall of the Soviet Union means that we likely won't see a revival, especially since most of the Akronoplan's problems have already been fixed in different kinds of aircraft. However, let's hope that within the next few years, when Patriot Park begins to show it, we'll be able to see this odd piece of history for ourselves. So yeah, Akronoplanes, they're honestly something I had never really heard that much about. Like my extent, like the extent of all my knowledge on Akronoplanes was that they existed before we did this episode. So I was very interested to uh, read about why they were used and how they were developed because I found that very interesting. However, I think uh, the main downfall of the Akronoplane was that it was extremely expensive, extremely unreliable, and just super impractical for something that could be done way better by another aircraft. So the main theme with these was that they were um, meant for anti-submarine or anti-surface ship warfare. However, given that they would have to be so low down to the surface, like right near the water, that really wasn't going to be impractical, or sorry, really wasn't going to be practical for uh, fighting off enemy ships which, yeah, you could just do with uh, different aircraft like the uh, Su-25, the Frogfoot, um, or you could do the uh, Tu-95, like I said uh, a few minutes ago. So I think that really was the downfall of the Akronoplan. And honestly, I don't think there is a good chance that we'll ever see uh, a revival of this technology, given that there are so many better aircraft that do those jobs today. But yeah, I really hope sometime we get to see these in a museum or in a park or anything like that, because I think these would be very weird, but very interesting to take a look up, uh, like really up close. So anyway, that is just about our time for tonight. So we'd once again like to thank you for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Good night, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one. Goodbye, everyone.